Good morning, everyone. For the Simons family, I am Jordan. This is my wife, Stacy, and our three kids, Greta, Mosey, and Anders. Uh, this morning, we'll be reading Revelation 21, verses 1 through 6 for you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Thank you so much. Good morning. Well, with that having been read to us from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, and I hope you sense the idea of Emmanuel in those verses we're going to explore together. First of all, let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, as we come into your presence, we're coming into presence of the sinless one. And we realize we're the sinful ones. It astounds us that you would even give us access. But you do so through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He paved the way for us to be able to come before you. And we don't take that lightly. We want to be able in this Advent season to be able to connect the realities of of Christ coming into Bethlehem with Christ going to Calvary to die in the place for us. Christ ascended to heaven, Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, someday to return. And we look forward, Father, to seeing how all this gets worked out in your master plan. Now, Father, you know the needs of each and every one, the one watching online, maybe pulling together a few friends right now to be able to process um, biblical truth and how it relates to modern day life. People in the prior service, people in this service, people processing today and those that might be watching in the days or weeks to come. You are the timeless one who works in timely ways. Changeless truths for changing times. You understand our future better than we understand our past. And we praise you, Father, that you are able to take all these things and work them out in an extraordinary, miraculous way that brings all glory and all honor to you and you alone. 
Father, the moments are important. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. And shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's explore where the Apostle John finds himself as he's writing Revelation to you and to me, where he is to be found on the Isle of Patmos. And so here is Patmos right here. It's about 60 miles southwest of Ephesus, Ephesus, where John had been previous, probably in the congregation that Timothy had pastored, shepherded. Timothy blessed not only because of the influence of the Apostle John in Ephesus, but also prior the Apostle Paul upon his life. So now here is John writing in around AD 90, and as he writes, he's been banished from, from what is now modern-day Turkey and to the Isle of Patmos by Domitian, who thinks he is the one who is emperor over Rome, has final authority, but guess again. Notice furthermore, when you and I make our way to Patmos, uh, the terrain that appears on the screen. It's uh, desolate, hard to walk, it's a difficult experience. It's populated today, but back then, those homes that were there are there or were not. And so John, banished to this isle, had time to process what it was that the sovereign one of the universe wanted to communicate to him with regard to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. But ponder this as well. There in his aloneness, Jesus Christ breaks in. As we sometimes say, it's possible to be alone and not be lonely. It's also possible to be lonely and not be alone. But here now is the Apostle John and he is isolated from humanity, but not from God. Because what he's about to experience is a God with us time. Where the presence of Emmanuel breaks into his solitary experience. It offers you and offers to me in these six verses that we're exploring this morning a tremendous understanding of how Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, came to be with us in that coming, not against us in that coming. And so what I want to do now is to look up these six verses, divide them into two parts. And the first part comes out of verse 1 down through verse 4, and we're going to pen it something like this. That you and I, as we consider the name Emmanuel, which means God with us, I want to begin by, in verses 1 down through verse 4, I want to note with you the presence of our Lord among his people. And so you pick it up now in verse 1, don't you? And here in verse 1, 
he once again uses a phrase that occurs again and again throughout the book of Revelation, then I saw. In other words, what God is doing is that he is communicating visually now to the Apostle John. And John has this extraordinary responsibility of taking the visual and communicating something verbal. Now, with that in mind, I saw, and here it comes right away, something we're going to have to explore together, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, what interests me is that the word that's used here in the original language for new is also a word that can be used for the word to renew. So the question becomes, to what degree are we dealing with a new heaven and new earth versus a renewed heaven and a new renewed earth? What helps you and helps me to begin to think about this Imagine, if you will, you are with the disciples in the upper room. And in that upper room, you are processing the evidences of the resurrected Savior Jesus Christ and his various appearances. By your side's Thomas. And Thomas, in essence, says, unless I see the nail prints in his hands, I will not believe. Just then, the resurrected one appears. He's got some advanced notice as to what Thomas is all about. And so now, he challenges Thomas to explore the nail prints in his hands. Now, we would argue that molecularly, this is the same body. But... In Jesus' appearances, there were double takes where people were turning their heads. He is, but is, he, is that him? Because what I would argue for is that the glorified body allows for us to better understand and argue for the idea of a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. In the Greek there are two words for new, neos and kainos. The former word, neos, designates something that is new in time. But kainos has to do with something that is new in nature. When Jesus Christ was raised from the grave, he maintained nail prints in his hands, yet he was able to penetrate walls. It was Jesus, but at the same time, there was a different quality to his physical features than there was prior to crucifixion. It makes me wonder, having walked around the walls of Jerusalem and pondered, pondered the war, war of 1967, where if you're with a tour guide, I might point out to you, there are, there are the 
There are the bullet holes from that war still there. And now you begin to think very seriously about what you are beginning to unpack here. When I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. We would argue then that the idea of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God carries with it the idea then that God is the source of this renewal, just as the second member of the Trinity experienced renewal from the first member of the Trinity by raising him from the grave on that third day. Nail prints and hands makes you wonder with the new Jerusalem if the bullet holes will remain as a reminder of all that the people had gone through. Marco Polo. Dr. Clarence McCartney tells this story, traveler of the 13th century. He lay dying. He was being urged by those around him to recant, withdraw the stories he had told about China, lands of the Far East. But he said, quote, I have not told half of what I saw. Unquote. Can you imagine now John on the Isle of Patmos? And he's trying to find ways to be able to communicate what he has seen in written form. You get the impression that he's not even beginning to communicate half of what he saw. I saw a new heaven. We would argue here because it's kainos, not neos in the Greek. A renewed heaven, renewed earth. First heaven, first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. Think now hydraulics. And we think about how encompassing so much of the earth is, filled with water, sea, oceans. But no longer will hydration be dependent upon such because the one who offers living water is there to be able to provide and meet each and every need. No need to continue to hydrate. And so in verse 2, he says, I saw the holy city. And now what I want you to be able to see here, because the same wording again, it's the new Jerusalem. Think of what's happening in the Middle East right now. Coming down out of heaven from God. In other words, God is the source of this form of renewal. And then using the idea of Jewish weddings, which was a threefold process. Phase one, betrothal which is what Joseph and Mary experienced. Phase two was a week-long celebration. And then phase three, consummation. What he is now describing here is that this new Jerusalem, the source, God the Father, God the Son, 
being revealed through God the Holy Spirit, coming down out of heaven from God. And then because of the usage of imagery throughout the book of Revelation, you are offered similes as well as metaphors, where John is trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to explain this? How should I describe that? And so he's prone to say, well, it's as this or as that. The way you might be prone to have to use similar descriptions when you have gone to visit, say, the Grand Canyon or something like that, and others have not been there. And so he is not using these forms of words, similes. It's, it's as a bride adorned for her husband. And now what you've got on hand is the new Jerusalem principle unfolding. Not far from where our, our son Joseph was practicing medicine in New York City, there was a court scene where the judge was Jewish and those that were being put on trial were Jewish. And as the proceedings were unfolding, out in the hallway, where the, was the song beginning to unfold. Last night I lay asleeping, and there came a dream so fair. I stood in old Jerusalem beside the temple there, and it got so quiet. as the Jewish judge looked down upon the, one, the ones being put on trial. But it was impossible to stop the person from singing out there in the hallway, who then went on to the song's climax. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, sing for the night is o'er. Hosanna in the highest. And then all of a sudden, others in the courtroom began to sing along. Hosanna forevermore. And the judge sighed and dismissed the case. It's almost as if the New Jerusalem principle has broken in. It's as if God is saying, case dismissed. It's as if uh, it's the bride adorned for her husband and all is now being put in order. When you are studying the book of Revelation, you have to do so with an eye on both the books of Ezekiel and Zechariah in the Older Testament, with a smattering of Daniel as well, but also heavy doses of the Gospel of John, penned by the Apostle John, and how it informs the theology of Revelation. Look for the usage of the word throne that appears again and again in the book of Revelation and how that 
idea is also to be found in the book of Daniel and in the book of Ezekiel of the Older Testament. Now, in the earlier chapters of Revelation, you've got these concentric circles of singers that are, are saying, behold the Lamb of God, you see. Worthy is the Lamb of God. And now, I heard a loud voice from the throne. And this loud voice from the throne begins to, begins to capture the attention of this one who is standing there on the aisle. And he's longing, perhaps, for some kind of fellowship, maybe remembering the experience of what it's like to be with the other disciples. But now in his aloneness, but is he? Is he truly alone? He hears this loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man in a manual moment. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Camp on that for a moment. What now is occurring here on the Isle of Patmos is that the Apostle John is going to be able to go into his Older Testament library and begin to think through what it is that God has said about all the various ways in which the witness of God was experienced by, by those who had gone before, such as in Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 and 8. I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you and throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you, to your offspring you after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be there. God. You make your way into Exodus of chapter 6 and verse 7. I'll take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And you make your way furthermore to Exodus chapter 29, verses 45 and 46. I will dwell among the people of Israel, will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. That I might dwell among them, I am the Lord their God. Now, the word dwell is the word to tabernacle. I will tabernacle among them. Fast forward. There is John on the Isle of Patmos. And in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself 
will be with them as their God. And it's as if, it's as if John is saying, I'm not alone. And what I want to say to you right now is that no matter what you're experiencing, you're not alone. And frankly, he went through far worse. And he's got nail prints still in his hands to demonstrate it. Anna Shackleton standing before this gathering to honor him after his, his extraordinary expeditions. He looks at the crowd, this man who knew the Lord, and begins to recount the story of Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the account in Daniel. One, two, three, he pauses. Four, counted the king as he gazed in astonishment upon the Babylonian furnace. One, two, three, four, exclaimed the explorer. He smiled. He continued. While making our way through those waters, we all felt that there were not three of us, but four of us, he said at the banquet, describing his adventures to rescue 20 men on Elephant Island, making their way in a, an open boat, a 20-foot whaler, 800 miles of storm-swept sea, as he described it. He would eventually write a book about the subject. And at that banquet, Shackleton said nothing of his historic heroisms, but he had something no less notable to say. Someone says, you could have heard a pin drop. Says one who was present when Ernest spoke of his consciousness of a divine companion in his travel. He would go on to say this. One of my companions, Worsley, said to me, Boss, I had a curious feeling on our way that there was another person in that boat with us. Mr. Crean, who was in that boat as well, said the same thing. One feels a lack of human words, but in a journey such as this, we are told, it would be incomplete without understanding how it relates to what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and another. Shackleton, Worsley, Crean, and another. One, two, three, four in the fiery furnace. One, two, three, four in the stormy seas. And lo, the form of the fourth was like the Son of God. Shackleton added. And so here's the presence of God getting unpacked for you, getting unpacked for me.
And you're looking at this and you're saying, Emmanuel, God with us. He came not to come against us. He came to be with us. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And then, and then something extraordinary. It's as if now what God is doing for you and me, for all those who've experienced loss in life, and so many of us have, intensely, grip what comes next. He will wipe away every tear. Not some of them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. And then Emmanuel says this to you and says this to me. For the former things have, have passed away. And you find strength in these words. Because you've got one who's got a basis to say such. He speaks. with nail prints still in his hands. For three days later, he was raised from the grave. At the University of Glasgow, 1896, Dr. David Livingston was asked, what would you like me to tell you what support me through all the years of exile among a people whose language I could not understand whose attitude toward me was always uncertain, often hostile, it was this. Lo, I am with you always. Even to the end of the world. And what I want to say to you is that when Jesus said that, that was a major installment. But the final installment still to come You need a Revelation chapter 21 experience to pull past, present, and future together. And so there was Peter, and he was fishing. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, after the boat is overwhelmed with fish, because Jesus is with them in the boat, Peter says to Jesus, depart from me. For I am a sinful man. And Jesus had never said a word about sin. Yet there was this extraordinary consciousness that the one who was with them was different from them. 
And now, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you embrace the, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the ages. But you know that there's something still more to come. Because you've got to take verses 1 through 4 and build a bridge now. Build a bridge. Would you do that into verses 5 and on into verse 6? And when you do that, here then is the second part of this expression of witness. I want you to furthermore notice with me what I'll call the proclamations of our Lord to his people. Let's call it to his people rather than among his people here. Now what I want to be able to draw out for you and look very carefully at the text, verses 5 and 6, is that there are three proclamations. And we call these proclamations because they're coming from the throne. And these are edicts, powerful statements from the one who's sovereign over all. Domitian has sent the Apostle John to the Isle of Patmos, but there is one greater than Domitian here who's in control in issuing his proclamations. And there are three of them in 5-6. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And now you begin to pull this together and you're thinking this, how seriously all this relates to what Jesus Christ has promised. But furthermore, all that Jesus Christ has accomplished. And there's the first proclamation. Behold, I am making all things new. But then, right away, a second proclamation is issued. One of the most significant things that we can draw out of this passage. He goes on now to say this. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life has just uttered this. And you and I know that in work situations, school situations, relationships... When truth breaks down, trust breaks down. But the one of absolute integrity says, write this down in his second proclamation, for these words are trustworthy and true, says the one who proclaimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But now notice this. Here comes your third proclamation. Ani said to me, it is done. Sound familiar? There are three time markers in the Bible that pertain to that expression. The first is in Genesis. We're at the end of Genesis chapter 1. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, in Genesis 2 verse 1. 
and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. That is your first, what I will call, finish marker in time. What's the second? Oh, you know it. We're on that cross. Jesus, knowing that all was now, you same word again, finished. Said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wines stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop. Branch held it up to his mouth, and there is the apostle John standing with Jesus' mother at the foot of the cross. And here's what's about to be proclaimed next. It is finished. And now what you've done brilliantly is that you've tied together the end of Genesis 1, beginning of Genesis 2, to John chapter 19. At the cross of Jesus Christ, 28 through 30, I, one word in the Greek, it is finished. But John views now Revelation 21, verses 5 and 6, as the, as the climactic moment to emphasize this. He said to me, it is done. But I tie together, it is done, with the next expression, the resurrected one says it is done by proclaiming, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You can almost sense now John's hand is trembling. He's recounting all of his experiences with Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And his mind is being transported, isn't it, to John chapter 4, which he penned by the workings of the Holy Spirit. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well? As now Emmanuel says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life. Without payment. And John himself quoted Jesus in that dialogue with the Samaritan woman who, who asked, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. You tying that to Revelation 21, verse, verses 5 and 6, the end of 6? And then furthermore, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become 
in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Says the Samaritan woman to the one who in Revelation 21 Verse 6 says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life. And people, here's grace without payment. A traveler in an arid setting, disappointed, can't find water. And all of a sudden, he noses off to the side an old jug, and he looks at it, wipes away the dust and the dirt. He sees this dusty old pump. And the words are, you have to prime the pump with all the water in this jug, my friend. P.S. Be sure you fill the jug again before you leave. He pops the cork out of the jug, and sure enough, there's water in the jug, almost full of water, when suddenly he's faced with this dilemma. If he drinks the water, he could live for a bit. But if he pours all the water in this old rusty pump, maybe it would yield fresh, cool water from down deep in the well, all the water that's needed. He studies the options, what to do. Pour it into the old pump, take a chance on fresh, cool water for short term or long term. Or drink what was in the old jug, ignore its message. Should I ignore the message or should I not? Should, should he waste all the water on the hopes of those flimsy instructions, no telling how long ago, so reluctantly, he poured all the water into the pump, all of it, thirsty as he is. Grabbed the handle, began to pump. A squeak, another squeak, still another squeak. Still nothing comes out, more squeaks, until a little bit begins to dribble out. And then a small stream. And finally, he gushed, and to his relief, cool water poured out of the rusty pump. And eagerly, he filled the jug and drank from it, filled it another time, once again drank its refreshing contents. And then he filled the jug for the next traveler, and he filled it to the top, popped the cork back on, and then added this little note. Believe me, it really works. You gotta, you have to give it all away before you can get anything back. As the Samaritan woman, hearing of living water, leaves Christ's presence to go to tell others about living water that's found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And when you pull that together, you've got the presence of the Lord. You've got the proclamations of the Lord. You've got the reality 
of the living Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Let's stand together. And so, Father, we're thanking you now. The water you offer is no short-term experience. But this water that you offer is meant to be, it's meant to be such that others need to hear about it. Like that Samaritan woman. Like the apostle John who tells of such on an Isle of Patmos when he feels alone, but the reality is he's not lonely. And for all those, Father, who feel so lonely, may their experience be transformed into the witness that comes with knowing Emmanuel and God with us. May the result be, Father, they can know the dynamics of what it means at all times to be in your presence for your honor, your glory. We give you all praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.